I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. School of Humans. As a lot of you probably already know, while I've been working on the Christina Pipkin case... I've also been exploring other unsolved deaths in Arkansas. Right now, I'm looking at an article from the Commercial Appeal newspaper that came out on Thursday, June 3rd, 1993. The title of the article is, Authorities Wonder If Six Kids' Deaths in East Arkansas Are Related. Those children the article referred to were Christina Pipkin, who, as we know, went missing in May of 1991, and also Steve Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers, the three eight-year-old boys who were murdered in West Memphis in 1993. It also includes 16-year-old Gardenia Cross and 13-year-old Geneva Smith. Gardenia and Geneva's bodies were found near Wynn, Arkansas, just a few miles from Hickory Ridge. To be honest, I haven't seen any obvious connections between these children in East Arkansas. As we said before, these children were different ages some were different races, and they had very different life circumstances. The boys in West Memphis and Gardenia Cross had been brutalized, while in Christina's case, there didn't appear to be any outward signs of violence. So, just on the surface, it does not seem like this was the work of a single serial killer. But there are a lot of weird coincidences in these cases. In fact, in three of the four cases... Suspects were arrested, but ultimately released. All of these children were found in or near bodies of water, and all of them are unsolved. I'm Katherine Townsend. Over the past five years of making my true crime podcast, Hell and Gone, I've learned that there is no such thing as a small town where murder never happens. I've received hundreds of messages from people all around the country asking for help with an unsolved murder that's affected them their families, and their communities. If you have a case you'd like me and my team to look into, you can reach out to us at our Helen Gone Murder Line at 678-744-6145. That's 678-744-6145. This is Helen Gone Murder Line. 
I'm making my way through all these freedom of information requests I've done over the past few weeks. Obviously, we have Christina Pipkin's case file, though there do appear to be some documents missing, including crime scene photos. The Arkansas State Police told me they believe the Geneva Smith case is still open, so they were not able to provide me with any information from that case file. And they weren't able to find Gardenia Cross's case at all. They said they had no record of it at the Arkansas State Police. Now, this could just mean that this case file is with the county. I filed a request in Cross County, and I'll let you all know what happens. But even though the circumstances of all these children's deaths were so different, I want to take a look at some of the seemingly odd similarities. In Christina Pipkin's case, remember there was a suspect, Robbie Tubbs. He was arrested years later in 1999, and then he was later released due to some pretty catastrophic mistakes with the hair fiber evidence that was found. In 1992, Geneva Smith was 13 years old. She left home to get on the school bus and she never came back. A few days later, her body was found floating in the St. Francis River. Her remains were badly decomposed, so much that it was hard to identify her. I was struck by the fact that there is very little about Geneva Smith's murder out there. The theories about who killed her, if you look on online forums, range from a serial killer to the KKK to a member of her extended family. Basically, it's a mixed bag and no one seems to have any real answers. There was an arrest in Geneva's case, but like in Christina Pipkin's case, the arrest came years later. In November of 1999, the same year when police were building a case against Robbie Tubbs for Christina Pipkin's murder, two men named Johnny Key and Freddie Jones were arrested and charged with Geneva Smith's murder. Police did not say much at the time, but apparently the case depended on the cooperation of a key witness. I found this from a local newspaper back in the day. It read, quote, Freddie Jones, 26, of Earl, and Johnny Key, 36, of Parkin, appeared before Judge Richard L. Proctor on Monday and were bound over to Cross County Circuit Court to stand trial on one count of capital murder. The article goes on to say, Sheriff Ronnie Baldwin said Oren Page, 22, of Wynn, was also arraigned on a charge of hindering apprehension of a suspect in connection with the Smith case. She was being held in the Cross County Jail Monday on unrelated charges when she was arrested in connection with the murder, end quote. So the newspaper brings up two male suspects and one female who they believe were involved in Geneva Smith's murder. The newspaper also talked to the sheriff, and the article mentioned that the sheriff said that he had worked with Arkansas State Police investigator Dale Arnold. Remember, that's the same investigator who also worked on Christina Pipkin's case. The sheriff said that he and Dale Arnold felt they finally had enough information to make some arrests. And the article said that all three of these suspects, Johnny Key, Freddie Jones, and Irene Page, had all been interviewed by police back in 1992 when Geneva Smith originally went missing. Police seemed fairly confident that they had a case. But then something happened. Apparently, their key witness had a change of heart. The sheriff, Ronnie Baldwin, later confirmed this. He told the newspaper the case had fallen apart when that witness backed out. So I'm wondering about the woman who was arrested. 
if she was the witness and was 22 years old in 1999, that would mean that she would have been around 16 years old, just three years older than Geneva, back when Geneva was killed. So now I'm wondering, who was this woman? What was her connection to Geneva Smith? And it's been years since these suspects were questioned and later released. Is law enforcement planning on building that case any further? Have they developed any new suspects? Do they have any new leads at all? And if not, would they consider turning over this case file and making it public, like they have with Christina Pipkin's case? I am not sure what the decision will be in Geneva Smith's case. I do know Arkansas has made new rules to classify cases as officially cold when they've been unsolved for two years or more. Maybe they will release part of the case file. I do hope they'll consider it because in Christina's case, it has helped. I've only been working on this case for a few weeks, and even though it has been almost 30 years since Christina Pipkin went missing and her body was found, we've been able to find a lot of people who've never been interviewed by the police. We've also gotten a lot of names out of the case file, and we were able to find a lot of them. As a result of that, we are filling in the blanks. I would love to be able to do the same thing for Geneva Smith's case. So if someone out there knows someone who knew Geneva Smith, anyone in her family, her friends, or anyone who saw anything, I would love to hear from these people. I did some very preliminary online sleuthing to try and find the people who were charged with Geneva's murder and what happened to them. I found Freddie Jones. It wasn't too hard because he's now in prison. Freddie Jones has a fairly long criminal record. According to court records, in 2017, he was sentenced to 40 years for aggravated robbery of a Valero gas station in Fayetteville. He also got an additional five years for carrying a firearm because he was a felon. According to court documents, this length of sentence, which does seem very long, was due to his status as a habitual offender. So let's go back to the newspaper article for a minute, the one I talked about at the top of the episode, the one that talked about potential connections in these child death cases. The reporter, Rob Johnson, talked about 16-year-old Gardenia Cross, who was murdered in 1992. Gardenia was 16 years old and in 10th grade at Wynn High School. On October 14, 1992, she disappeared. That same day, on Moore Road, right outside of Wynn, a guy was collecting cans when he found her body on the side of the road. Gardenia was naked except for a bra. Her skull had been pierced and punctured with a small object. Police thought it could be some type of tool, maybe something like a screwdriver. Forensic testing later revealed that at the time of her death, Gardenia was around five months pregnant. And then there were crickets. There was nothing more that I could find really ever reported about this case. But I think the reporter, Rob Johnson, got some crucial information. He went to interview Gardenia's great-grandmother, Hattie Cross. He found out that Gardenia already had a two-year-old daughter. That means that Gardenia's daughter must have been born around the time Gardenia was around 14 years old. He was also the person who reported that she was five months pregnant at the time of her death. Now, I don't want to rush to conclusions. The killer could have been a stranger. This could have been a random attack. But we also know that, sadly, pregnancy can be one of the most dangerous times of a woman's life. One of the leading cause of death of pregnant women in America is homicide. 
So I want to know where that baby's father is. If that person was ever questioned, maybe there was someone who was not happy about her pregnancy. And these are all things that we have to consider. Coming back to the Christina Pipkin case, I've been going through the case file and trying to reach out to people the police interviewed. And when I did, as you probably already know, there were a lot of discrepancies. Not only that, I saw something in this case I've never had happened before in anything I've ever investigated. One of the biggest issues we've had in trying to review this case file is the fact that basically none of the interviews were transcribed. Everything is just these brief typed reports. So there are a lot of mistakes in those. I've seen errors made in police reports before, but I've seen mistakes in Christina's case unlike anything I've ever seen. In our last episode, I talked to Donna King. Now, in the case file, there is a police report where an investigator said he spoke to Donna King. She told them that on the night Christina Pipkin went missing, she saw Charles Cotton's wife, Rebecca Cotton, walking on the side of the road and that Charles Cotton was approaching her on a three-wheeler. This was a very detailed description of what happened. Apparently, according to police, Donna said she observed Rebecca Cotton crying, looking annoyed at Charles and not getting on the three-wheeler. Then Charles Cotton apparently left and came back in a vehicle. This was a few minutes later and he picked Rebecca Cotton up and they left together in the car. The only problem is... Donna King said that this was absolutely not what she said to the police. She is insistent that she never saw Rebecca Cotton on the night Christina Pipkin went missing. Donna King said that part of the story was correct. She was out of town that day. She and her husband had gone to Memphis. But she said as soon as she got back in town, she met up with a friend of hers. The friend of Donna's who she met up with is actually someone else we've spoken to. There were two cashiers at the Bearcat who we've talked to so far. The woman I'll call cashier number one served the mysterious stranger who came in at around 545. She's the one who worked on the composite drawing with police. There was another cashier. We'll call her cashier number two. Now, cashier two was working in the back section of the store where the video rentals happened for most of the night. But between 7 and 9 p.m., she worked the main register. After Donna came back to town, she met up with cashier number two. Together, they rode around and looked for Christina Pipkin, and they both confirmed each other's stories. They said they never saw Rebecca Cotton that night. When I asked Donna what she thinks happened, she believes that maybe the police officers got her story mixed up with someone else's. This sounds crazy, but it's actually not that hard to believe. Because even more disturbing than the wrong information Donna said the police included in that report was what she said they left out. Donna said that the next day after Christina went missing, she saw a stranger in a brown car near the area where Christina's body was found. She is adamant. She said she described that person and that vehicle to the police. But there's no record of that brown car anywhere in the case file. So the question is, Where did the police get the information about the person who supposedly saw Rebecca Cotton on the side of the road that night? And if that person wasn't Donna King, who was it?
In the last episode, we talked about a couple of the names who keep coming up in this case. And I want to give y'all an update. We have gotten more information about a friend of Robbie Tubbs, the man named Jackie. The person who I referred to is Jackie question mark in last week's episode because we didn't know his last name. We were able to get his last name. I've been exchanging messages with a couple of different young women who told me that Jackie was, in their words, creepy and that he made her and several other young women very uncomfortable. I wanted to track Jackie down. I wanted to ask him questions about Robbie Tubbs and about what went on around the time when Christina went missing. I wanted to know, were Jackie and Robbie in or near Hickory Ridge that day? But I found out that Jackie passed away in 2008. Sadly, this is another dead end. The second cashier at the Bearcat, who we talked to in the last episode, told us about the fear and panic that broke out in the town after Christina went missing. She described what the atmosphere was like. The next day, I'm at work at 12 at Bearcat, and um, it was just horrific. Uh, Seeing, it was was horrific and how do I say, awesome at the same time that so many people were there, were, were on the streets, were in the parking lot, were, you know, gathered together to try to, you know, set up teams. You know, the community really came together. And she noticed the same thing that I noticed. She noticed that Charles Cotton seemed to have been very involved in the search for Christina Pipkin. She also found it odd. She said he wasn't someone who appeared to know the family well, And James had said he just met Charles Cotton through his neighbors. She made such, I mean, I thought, is he really trying to make an impression? Um, And he was just like glued to the family, it seemed like. Mm -hmm. And and I was just like, you know, of course we were all wanting to search and look. Absolutely. Um, But I I mean, then I thought, you know, Channel 8 News came down. Um, there was a lot of publicity, and I just put it as, you know, he was just wanting attention. And I didn't really, you know, think too much more about it. With help from some sources in town, I have mapped out the rest of Christina's neighborhood. And there are other people who I would like to locate. I have verified through multiple sources who were living in the neighborhood at the time that Charles Cotton and his family were, contrary to what his wife Rebecca told the police, living in a house just a couple of doors down from the Pipkins. There was also another young family there. They lived in a trailer. They had several children, and according to the neighbors, they were only there for a few months. Apparently, the family was from around Beedeville, the area near where Christina's body was found. Now, people say this family was not around for a long time. They weren't sure of the exact dates. But I would like to know who those people were, and I would like to talk to them because if they left abruptly after Christina went missing, that's something we need to check out. We know from past cases that people who show up in town and leave shortly after a suspicious death need to be thoroughly vetted. And I want to go back and ask something that may seem obvious, But since part of this is investigating the investigation itself, we have to double-check everything. We need to know, 
how can we be sure that Christina Pipkin drowned? And how can we be sure that it was definitely not an accidental drowning? Hey, y'all, it's Catherine. As you know from Helen Gone, crime can happen to anyone at any time. When it comes to home security, your best line of defense is your vigilance and preparation. That's why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. Obviously, we cannot control everything that happens out there in the world, but when I'm in my own home, I feel very reassured by the fact that I have a home security system. And Simply Safe is affordable, easy to use, and crucially, it's easy to get started with and then build on later as you need more functionality. They have a huge variety of indoor and outdoor cameras. It's backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day with no contracts and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash Helengon. That's simplysafe.com slash Helengon. There's no safe like Simply Safe. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always gonna have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to take a step back for a minute because there has been a lot of discussion during Christina's case about what we can learn from the limited facts we have without an autopsy report. So let's talk about drowning. According to a report on NBC News, Deaths by drowning are super challenging. They're among the hardest for investigators to prove. The way that medical examiners figure out that a death is by drowning is basically by the process of elimination. 
they have to rule out everything else. A lot of children drown in the United States every year. According to a 2023 article in The New Yorker, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has listed drowning as the number one cause of death for young children, which they define as age one to four. And Arkansas has one of the highest rates of childhood drowning in the country, according to a study done by Quote Wizard, the third highest in the nation. Between 2018 and 2020, there were 25 fatal drownings in Arkansas. 13 of those were children under the age of five. So how do we know if a body found in water did drown and if that drowning was intentional or accidental? In water, bodies tend to sink first and then rise to the surface. In warm, shallow water, like at Cow Lake Ditch, as gases in the body accumulated from the decomposition process, this would have taken around 72 hours. Christina's body was found three days after she went missing. Water investigations have come a long way in the past three decades. Now, there are training seminars for investigators who are processing homicides that involve a body of water. There are a few different types of scenarios that can occur here. You have people who were killed on land and then dumped into the water as they are dead or dying, people who actually drowned in the body of water, and accidental drownings, and they all have some distinctive characteristics. We know that Christina could have accidentally drowned because she couldn't swim. That would have made sense. But the first question homicide investigators are told to ask is if the victim's location makes sense. And in Christina's case, it did not. It made zero sense that she would suddenly be miles away from home right before dark when she had been hanging around very close to her house all day. But even though crime scene investigation techniques are improving, killers can still hide a lot of evidence in pools of dirty water. I use a textbook for all of my investigations. I carry it around everywhere with me. So at this point, it's kind of falling apart, but it's called Practical Homicide Investigations. I've talked about it before. It's by a former NYPD homicide detective named Vernon Gaberth. It's become the textbook that a lot of police departments use to train their detectives. In this book, he describes a lot of staged crime scenes involving drowning, and he has a lot of examples. Some are cases where the victim was drowned elsewhere, like a bathtub, and then taken and dumped into the body of water. Remember, a lot of people thought this was what could have happened to Christina Pipkin. But we know the evidence in Christina's case indicates the mud and water found in Christina's lungs did match the water in Cow Lake Ditch. I've also talked to a family member, and this person is attempting to access Christina's autopsy report. I hope that we can get access to that, because there are a lot of things I think we could potentially learn. Among the questions I have are these. I want to know if there was any white foam present. It's called hemorrhagic edema fluid. This foam forms as a result of mucus from the throat mixing with water and blood. It's a major indication the person may have drowned. And we don't know from Dr. Fahmy Malik, the medical examiner's report, if that was present. We do know Dr. Malik said there were no signs of violence. He said he didn't find signs of a struggle, no bruising, no obvious signs of strangulation, nothing to show, for example, that someone held her head underwater forcibly. But maybe there are other clues in the report, something that could tell us if she had less obvious signs, 
like the broken blood vessels that could be indicative of strangulation. Also, I would love to know, did Christina have anything in her hands? This could tell us if she was grabbing at something, for example, when she was in the water. If not, this could indicate she was unconscious when she went into the water. And I know that it's been a long time, but don't forget, sometimes major breakthroughs can be made by a second look even decades later. The NBC report had an example. The news channel talked about a case from Illinois where a woman had drowned in a bathtub and basically there was no sign of a struggle or forced entry. At first, it was ruled an accident. But eventually, investigators brought a new pathologist in and that person found bruises on the victim's elbows, bruises that forensic testing had missed. Later, police focused on this woman's husband. They were able to find insurance policies that the husband had taken out on his wife. They eventually found a motive, but they wouldn't have even looked for that motive if they had not first gone back over the forensics. This is what I'm trying to do, both with the autopsy report and with the case file. But again, because the police reports were so vague, I've been really struggling with being able to verify concrete times in any part of this report. Which brings me back to the very beginning of the case. One of the only things that we have a time for, a definite time, is that movie. And I've been thinking about that movie that James Pipkin was watching since this case started. In James's statement, he said on Saturday, May 4th, he said that he was taping the movie The Hunt for Red October, and he was starting to watch it while it taped, and that during that movie, he became concerned that Christina had not come home, and that's when he started looking for her. Let's take a step back. Let's track everyone who said they saw Christina Pipkin for sure that day, at least according to the police reports and the case file. After the family came back from their errands, Christina Pipkin was at her home on Doty Street by around 4 p.m. That's when the Fords, the neighbors whose yard backed up to the Pipkin house, saw Christina playing out in her backyard. Shortly after that, Christina left the house to sell jewelry. She had her flyer showing the different types of jewelry people could buy with her. That's around when Elsie Lyles, the Pipkin's neighbor, and the person who sometimes babysat Christina, saw Christina and gave her a pickle as a snack. Christina ate the pickle, and she left Elsie's house, telling Elsie she'd be back for dinner. Elsie said Christina never showed. After leaving Elsie's during that afternoon... Christina was walking around the area around the Bearcat and the bank. Again, this is a very small area, but a lot of people were coming through the main drag around then because if you want to get cigarettes or snacks, the Bearcat was pretty much the only game in town. We know that around 5.45 p.m., the first cashier we spoke to, the one who was working the register for most of the day, said she saw the stranger, the one who came into the store and looked a little like Richard Gere the guy she later identified in a composite photo. She said that he came in to buy a pack of Marlboro Reds. He parked his car, a brown sedan, not blue, as the police wrote in their report, way up on the sidewalk. Then he got in his car and left. The cashier said the stranger came and went just a few minutes after Christina and some other kids were walking through, milling around the Bearcat grocery store. Christina was going to and from the area right around her house. At around 5.30, Ricky Dawson and his friend James Bashirs, who were next door at the Moore's house, saw Christina on the porch of her house. 
By around 6.30, Christina was back at the Bearcat. That's when her math teacher, Miss Lamb, told police that she saw Christina and briefly talked to her. Sometime before dark, which was around 8 p.m., the other cashier, cashier number two, the cashier we talked to, who police never interviewed, said she saw Christina in the store. She said she knew for sure this happened before dark. She remembered the street lights were not on yet. Then Christina left. Frida, Christina's mom, told police she went to the Bearcat store at around 7.30 p.m. She bought some groceries, hung around for a few minutes, and then went back home. After she got home and started cooking dinner, this is when James Pipkin said they started watching the movie, The Hunt for Red October. They got worried that Christina hadn't come home, and Frida sent Christina's brother Adam out to look for her. When Adam came back and said he hadn't seen her, Frida left the house to look for her. But here's where it gets interesting, because James says in the police report, quote, I got the VCR ready to tape The Hunt for Red October. The movie came on, and I started taping it. I started getting worried that Christina had not come home yet. So we started looking for her. This was around 8 p.m., end quote. This was one concrete time that we could sort of frame everything else around. So I got a little obsessed when figuring out what time this movie aired. Back in the 90s, before streaming services, HBO and Cinemax movies aired on a national schedule. It was broken into different time zones, but basically, it was exactly the same air date around the country. So we should be able to verify that. There's just one problem. When I found the commercial for the movie on YouTube in an old guide, I found out that The Hunt for Red October aired in that region on Friday night not Saturday, the day Christina went missing. So if that's true, James could not have been taping The Hunt for Red October on Saturday night. That movie aired on Friday night. He might have misspoken. He could have said he previously taped the movie and was watching it on Saturday. Maybe the police were wrong, but in that police statement, he said a couple of times he was taping the movie, setting the VCR to tape it that night. He seemed to say he was watching the movie live as it aired. Now, maybe he's remembering Friday night instead of Saturday night, getting mixed up. Again, police did not interview James for several days after Christina went missing. But I do wonder, and I would love to clear up that discrepancy. Frida went into the Bearcat store right before 9 p.m. that night. And the second cashier, who we heard from earlier, said she vividly remembers... Christina's mother walking into the store crying and saying she couldn't find her daughter. And then Mrs. Pipkin came in. She was crying and we said, well, we already pretty much set the registers down or we'll be glad to. And said, no, I just need to use payphone. The payphone was like when you walk in the door, you would make a right, direct right, and it was on the wall. There was a window and then there was the payphone and then it started with the, the drinks. And uh, she ran to the phone and she called the police. And, you know, she didn't really, that's when we heard her say, my little girl's missing. I was like, oh my God. You know, we saw her just, you know, a couple of hours ago. And um, I don't know why no one ever questioned me ever at the time. I kept thinking Mr. Arnold would come and talk to me. No one ever questioned me. 
I find it shocking that there was no police interview with this cashier, this person who was one of the last people to see Christina alive. There's also no interview with the other cashier. The police report just said he had nothing of substance to offer the investigation. But I disagree with that. I think he could have seen something extremely important, even if he didn't realize what he was seeing at the time. And it's a shame we don't have a longer interview with him. So where do we go from here? There's still a lot of people who need to be checked out further. After speaking to cashier number one, it seems very plausible that Robbie Tubbs could have been in Hickory Ridge that afternoon. A family member confirmed to me that Robbie does smoke Marlboro Reds. We know that he drove a brown car, a sedan, that matched the description of the one the cashier saw at the time. And, most crucially, the cashier felt strongly that the photo of Robbie she saw from back in the day looked like the composite drawing that she did with the police. Robbie Tubbs could have been the stranger who came into the Bearcat that night. But that's not enough for a definite ID. And even if it was, even if Robbie Tubbs was there, this is not proof that he did anything wrong. I want to be very clear about that. He absolutely could have been in that store for totally innocent reasons. We know that he had some ties to the area. He had his friend Jackie, who he went shelling with. When he drove through there, he would often drop him in Waldenburg, which is near Hickory Ridge. At the time, Robbie and his wife Sandra lived near Pocahontas, Arkansas. And at the time, Robbie had a girlfriend named Janetta. We've talked about that before. The route from Pocahontas to where Robbie went shelling passed right through Hickory Ridge. There's a route that would go right near his girlfriend's place and near the Bearcat. Robbie Tubbs smoked, and there are not that many places to make a pit stop and buy cigarettes. I also wondered about the evidence. We've already talked a lot about everything that happened with the hair, the disastrous wrong testing. So now I'm wondering, is there anything that police can do with the hair evidence that was so badly mishandled? We know forensic testing has improved a lot since 1992. But then I take another look at the case file and I see a report dated March 15th, 2023. In fact, it seems to be the only activity on Christina Pipkin's case that's taken place in years. And it's not good news. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. She's the shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC 
was leading a secret double life. Is she breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. According to the case file, in March of 2023, investigator Robert Scott of the Arkansas State Police contacted Dale Arnold, the original Arkansas State Police investigator on Christina's case. Robert Scott asked Dale Arnold about the hair sample. Dale Arnold said he had already given testimony about it when the mistake was discovered. It seemed from reading the report like it wasn't something that Dale Arnold wanted to pursue further. Then Robert Scott wrote, quote, Cross County Sheriff's Office Investigator Boykins pulled the case at my request and researched the evidence. Investigator Boykins was unable to find the hair recovered from the vehicle of Mr. Tubbs in the Cross County Sheriff's Office property room. Investigator Arnold stated he didn't know where the hair was now. I reviewed the case file in the custody of Cross County. No new information was developed. It is highly unlikely that the recovered hair could be used in a court proceeding due to the previous submission in the trial of Mr. Tubbs, end quote. I knew it was a long shot with this hair, but I can't help but feel devastated for Christina's family because what that means is that after that mistake at Robbie Tubbs' trial, the evidence, it seems, was returned from the Arkansas State Police Crime Lab to the Cross County Sheriff's Office, but it didn't stay there. Somehow, it's missing. And this is where I really start to feel outraged because it's not enough that they botched the testing. Now they've lost the hair. They've lost the one piece of physical evidence that could be definitively tested. It's just shocking. Investigator Scott goes on to say that he and another investigator did reach out to Robbie Tubbs, though they misspelled his name as Ronnie Tubbs. He said they have a last known address for Robbie at a motel in Sulphur Springs, Texas. I don't know if they don't want to find him or if they can't find him, but no further contact with Robbie Tubbs was recorded in the case file. I found Robbie Tubbs in about 10 minutes. 
I saw on social media that he sometimes posts from his hotel room. And I really don't know if the ASP don't feel they have enough evidence, they don't want to reach out, maybe there are jurisdictional issues, maybe they don't want to call Texas law enforcement with this. But either way, that recent report, plus the fact they've released the case file publicly, tells us the police, in my opinion, are not actively investigating this case. After Christina's funeral, her parents, James and Frida, moved away. Eventually, they divorced. Again, I take no joy in re-traumatizing anyone, in digging up family trauma, but I believe that there are answers in this case that could be found, and they are not in this police case file. We have to find these people. We need to talk to them. We have to keep going back to that Bearcat convenience store on the night of May 4th, 1991. And we have to zero in on the tiny little details. Now I'm zeroing in on one discrepancy. Christina's math teacher said when she spoke to Christina that Christina had her flyer for jewelry selling in her hand. But the cashier, cashier two, who saw Christina in the doorway of the Bearcat a little while later, said Christina did not have anything in her hands. And she remembered that because Christina kind of shrugged and she saw both of her hands go up and they were empty. So could Christina have left her flyer at home then come back to the store? If so, why was she coming back to the store if she was done selling her jewelry? Could she have seen someone she knew outside? Maybe someone who offered her a ride? Maybe that person had already talked to Christina when the cashier saw her inside the door. Maybe their car was sitting outside right then. I am not giving up on this case. I'm going to work my way through the hundreds of messages I've received and keep reaching out and keep trying to get answers. I'm going to document every single interview that I have, and I'm going to turn over any helpful information I find to law enforcement and to the prosecutor's office. And I'm going to keep pushing for access to that autopsy report and also to get any information that I can about Geneva Smith and Gardenia Cross. Of course, we can never know exactly what'll happen next, but I can promise, as always, I will keep working on this case in the background and I will keep you posted. Most importantly, I'm gonna keep talking to people, anyone I can, because every time I do, with every new detail that I learned that was not in the case file or in any of the police reports, That potential window of time that someone had to kidnap and murder a little girl gets smaller and smaller. We have to keep digging. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Helen Gone Murderline. Helen Gone Murderline is a production of School of Humans and iHeart Podcast. It's written and narrated by me, Katherine Townsend, and produced by Gabby Watts. Music is by Ben Salee. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, and Elsie Crowley. If you have a case you'd like me and my team to look into, you can reach out to us at our Helen Gone Murder Line at 678-744-6145. That's 678-744-6145. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. School of Humans.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 